Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, as we head into summer, the issue of tipflation continues to rankle a lot of us as we're nudged to tip more and more often than ever before. So what is the answer? Is there a way of pushing back ever so gently without penalizing good service? We find out. Journalist and author Melissa Fung joins us to talk about her new book, Between Good and Evil, The Stolen Girls of Boko Haram, having been abducted and held captive herself in Afghanistan in 2008. She sets out to share the stories of some of the more than 200 students taken by the Islamist militant group back in 2014 in Nigeria through her unique perspective. It's a question that more than a few of us have probably asked ourselves. If you see someone in mental health distress, whether it's on the street or in public transit, what can you do? Now, I know many of us will just put our heads down and keep walking, but is there an alternative? We find out. But first, the federal government announced changes to our passports today, making them more secure. They do this every 10 years, but also removing all of the pictures of historic Canadian icons, locations, and moments such as the last spike, Niagara Falls, and Terry Fox, replaced by sketches of Canada throughout the seasons. And some are none too pleased to see those images disappear. Speaking of our country, there are changes uh, announced today to our passports. This happens every 10 years or so. They kind of upgrade them, make sure the security is still state-of-the-art and so forth. And uh, 10 years ago, the Conservative government uh, saw it fit to sort of make them a little more colorful, add some Canadian history into them. Now, I don't know how many people sit back and read their passport or look at all the images, but if you're at the airport, sometimes you will, right? You kind of look around. And I remember being uh, with mine at one point and someone leaned over and sort of asked me what the pictures were, right? And sort of explain a little bit about Canadian history because it's right there in your passport. So that's changed, but we'll get to some of the better, the good news first. Um, You'll be able to apply for a passport renewal online now. Now, that's that's good news given the amount of backlog we saw over the last little while with getting passport renewals done. Um, if you want to apply for a new one, you have to still, still have to go to the uh, do it in person. But for a renewal, you can apply online, which is great, especially since those first uh, 10-year passports issued back in 2013 are all coming up for renewal. So they already thought it was going to be a bad year before the backlog started. Here is, uh, the, uh, here is Karina Gould. My sense is the new passport design, which was the result of consultation with a number of different groups that provided feedback, uh, reflects who we are as Canadians and is going to help ensure the security of our travel document and universal acceptance for many years to come. That, of course, was not Karina Gould. That was Sean Fraser, the immigration minister, um, saying, of course, that this is, um, that this is how the design is going to work. So uh, you can renew them at uh, online, which is good. So here's where the controversy comes in today. They are redesigning them to make them more secure, which includes a polycarbonate data page that's like a driver's license. And the, the paper will be a bit different. It'll feel more like currency. But they're making changes to the way the passports look as well. So gone are those historic pictures I was talking about, those icons and locations and moments such as the Fathers of Confederation, Samuel de Champlain, Niagara Falls, the last spike of the Canadian Pacific Railway, and Terry Fox. All of them out to be replaced by sketches of Canada through the seasons, birds, a kayaker, narwhals, uh, a man raking leaves. I mean, it's all quite pastoral, right? But it feels a bit like, I don't know if you've been to Europe recently and seen what a euro looks like. You know, because they, you know, there are many, many countries that use the same currency, they're quite generic looking. 
And they do that on purpose. And it feels like, you know, our passport perhaps has gone down the same route. Uh, Sean Fraser said, listen, they consulted with people. This is what they got back, uh, including the Department of Canadian Heritage, as well as Indigenous communities. And this is what they heard. So here's what we have. These changes aren't going to come in right away, but they should be done by the summer. And anyone applying for a passport by next fall will be getting one of these new ones. Uh, it hasn't made everybody happy. One of those people is Brad West. He's the mayor of Port Coquitlam out here uh, in BC. Terry Fox's hometown. Brad, thanks for your time. Thank you very much for having me, Ben. So, I mean, when I saw this today, I thought, wow, you know, I, I can see, I can see doing it, you know, having to do the whole thing differently. But the moment I, I noticed, and I saw your tweet, the moment I noticed that Terry Fox was gone, I thought, yeah, that's not good. <laughs> that's not I, good. I, I, no, I, I just think it's a really boneheaded decision, and uh, whoever made it should give their head a shake. I mean, they said they consulted with Canadians. I, I can't imagine a single Canadian taking offense to the fact that Terry Fox appeared in our passport. I, I mean... Talk about a, a unifying figure, uh, a young man from Port Coquitlam who has inspired millions of Canadians and continues to inspire millions of Canadians because of his selflessness, his courage, uh, what he did to bring this country together. And we need a lot more of that right now. Uh, it seems in so many ways our country is divided and Terry Fox is uh, one of those things that brings us together. And so uh, I just think that it's a completely wrong-headed decision. I think we need more Terry Fox in this country, not less. And uh, I have heard since I've spoken out from hundreds of Canadians, uh, Canadians who were inspired by the Marathon of Hope, who remember watching it on their TV. Maybe they went and stood by a, the roadside when Terry ran by but also by people who were not even alive during the Marathon right. of Hope, but who nonetheless are inspired by Terry's story. Uh, and it just seems that if, if, as the minister says, this is about having images that represent who we are as Canadians, Terry Fox should be, he should be there. He should continue to be there. Yeah, I was reading 43 years ago today, Terry was in Nova Scotia. He just finished the Newfoundland leg of uh, of that Marathon of Hope in 1980, and he was about at the 1,100-kilometer mark. And it brings back memories of watching it back in 1980 as well. I mean, I get what they were trying to do. You know, 10 years ago, there was a brouhaha because the Conservatives brought in sort of historical images into the passport. We hadn't had them before. And now they're being removed for these more generic kind of pastoral things. So I, I guess the, the, the argument on their side is if you're going to take out some, you take, out the, you take them all out and you just make it like the Euro, right? Like a generic kind of thing. But I, I, you're right. I don't think they thought this through. There must have been a way uh, to save some of that, to save some of that, because uh, the, the omission is glaring. And, and people, I was saying earlier, people ask, no, the passport's not a history book. I get that. But people will look at your passport and ask about who's in it, ask about your history, right? For, for sure. And look, I, I, I get some people are saying, well, it doesn't mean that we're not going to learn about Terry Fox. And they're right. And they say, you know, it doesn't mean that Terry Fox is, is being erased. And no, he's not being erased. He can't be erased. He can't be erased by any government because of, of what he did and, and what the Terry Fox Foundation continues to do, you know, raising um, over $850 million towards uh, a cure for cancer. His marathon of hope lives on. 
It lives on in communities like Port Coquitlam, where every year we have our Terry Fox hometown run and right. thousands of people come together. But, you know, the, I guess my view is this. Terry Fox is above politics. This is not about, well, this government brought his image in, and so now this government's going to make a change and, and take all the images out. Uh, you know, surely to God we can be a little bit more sophisticated than that, a little bit more mature than that. Uh, you know, I've had those conversations that you've talked about. I've been fortunate enough to travel different places, and you get in conversations with people, and they ask where you're from, and maybe they, you know, often they'll see your passport. And, and I've had those conversations, and, you know, sometimes say, oh, well, what do you do? Well, I'm the mayor. Of a, of a city in Canada. Oh, oh, what city? Port Coquitlam. <laughs> Never heard of it. <laughs> well, you know, it's close to Vancouver. Um, and w- what I'll often say is, um, you know, we're the hometown of Terry Fox. Right. And I remember having in, in an airport uh, in, um, where was it? In Toronto. An airport in Toronto. I had, you know, I had the most in-depth conversation with a gentleman from Australia who didn't know Porco Quillam, of course, but he knew Terry Fox. And he said that he remembers participating in Terry Fox runs in Australia and learning about his, his story and being inspired by it. I mean, just a remarkable thing um, halfway around the world. And, and so why, why would we want to take that away? You know, like it's just, I it's know, unnecessary. It's, it, it, it's, you know, you can renew the passport, sure, but his image was there. In my view, there was no need to take it away. Yeah, it was a great. Uh, it was a great. I mean, I remember the image. I remember read, looking through my new passport and looking at the different images and seeing the one of Terry and thinking, you know, I think it was the most. I believe it was the most current one, uh, or at least the, the most recent one, uh, being mm-hmm. from nineteen. In, any 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 hope that there may be a change here? It seems like it's already they've kind of already gone through the production phase. Of this, but it's not being produced yet. Well, that, I, I, I was paid very close attention to when you mentioned that. It, wasn't, it has not been produced yet. And, and, and surely to God, the federal government is hearing from all sorts of people. I mean, I've, I've had hundreds of, of emails. I've had thousands of uh, messages on social media. You know, and I'm just the mayor of Port Coquitlam, Terry's hometown, but thought it was important to say something. Um, I, I imagine that federal government is on the receiving end of, of, you know, tens of thousands of messages from Canadians who, of, of all political stripes, again, this is not about uh, liberal or conservative or any of that. This is, this is about someone who is above politics and who brings this country together, uh, who brought this country together during his marathon of hope, but who continues to do so uh, because of his story and because he was a regular person who did an extraordinary thing and cancer doesn't respect political ideology or gender or race or ethnicity or how long you've been in this country. We've all been touched by it. And that's why I think we connect with Terry and his story. And so I, I, I hope the federal government is listening. It's never too late to say, you know what? We got this one wrong. I think people would respect them if they said we've heard We've listened, we've heard, and we're going to make a change. And so I really hope they do that. 
And you'll be seeing the Fox family this weekend because they're leading your 100th May Day Parade, right? 100%. Uh, We have our 100th May Day Parade in Port Coquitlam, which we're really proud of. It's a huge community celebration. It's a big deal in Port Coquitlam. And I felt that there was no better person to lead us in, in such an important event than the family of Terry Fox. And so we're, we're very honored to have his brother, Daryl, be our parade marshal and lead us. So I look forward to seeing the Fox family there. Um, they continue to do such amazing work to carry on the legacy of their brother. Brad, what can we do, do you think? Should we start emailing our MPs and saying, come on, let's, let's, do, some, let's do something about this. Find a spot for Terry in there, beside the guy raking his leaves or something. <laughs> Absolutely. I think Canadians need to make their voices heard from coast to coast to coast. We need to email our MPs. I mean, and all, uh, whether this was a decision that was made within the bureaucracy or somewhere else, I mean, ultimately, uh, elected officials are the ones who are accountable to us, and we need to make our voices heard. And I know people are already doing that, and I encourage them to continue to do that. Um, you know, share your stories about about Terry and uh, what he means to people. Um, I, again, I, I, I listened very closely to the minister's comments. He said mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, the images in the passport are supposed to be about what defines the Canadian spirit. Um, and, and surely the god Terry Fox ranks a little bit above a, a bird or a gentleman raking leaves. Um, you know, I don't want to be glib about it, but uh, if that's the line that the minister is using, that uh, they are are looking to the images in our passport uh, to be ones that define the Canadian spirit. Uh, Terry Fox is at the top of that list. Well, Brad, I hope people are listening to you tonight. Thank you so much for your time, and uh, good luck with your with your hundredth May Day this weekend uh, with the Fox family there alongside you. Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. We have a ton of family friendly activities. It's all free. If you're in the area, come visit us in Port Coquitlam on Saturday. Great. Brad, thank you. Take care. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, those were some protests in New York. There have been many over the past week. Anger, lots of questions there after a 30-year-old man died last week after being placed in a chokehold on the subway by another passenger. According to reports, witnesses alleged Jordan Neely had been panhandling and shouting on the train. Um, a 24-year-old, later identified as a U.S. Marine, um, placed the man in a chokehold, eventually rendering him unconscious. Two other men could also be seen in the videos or on camera appearing to try to restrain Neely's arms. Now, the medical examiner determined the cause of death to be homicide as a result of compression of the neck. Neely had a history of mental illness. Um, Daniel Penny is the name of the U.S. Marine, who says Neely was acting aggressively in the subway car. All of this is the subject of an investigation. Um, Penny, the Marine, has been questioned but not charged. Uh, There are a lot out there who want him to, but again, under investigation. Today, New York City Mayor Mayor Eric Adams uh, was calling for more mental health services follow-up. He says Neely was provided services to help him live safely in the community, but that those efforts were clearly not enough. Jordan Neely's life mattered. He was suffering from severe mental illness, but that was not the cause of his death. His death is a tragedy that never should have happened. 
That was New York City Mayor Eric Adams. Now, that's, this happened in New York City, but if you live in the center of a city like Vancouver or Victoria or any number of communities across the country, you've probably at some point uh, seen someone in distress, in mental health distress. It's something that, that I think we become more familiar with seeing. I see it quite often where I am in Victoria. I don't live too, too far uh, from the main shelter here. You do see lots of people, not to equate the two, but you do see people um, in different throat states of, of mental, clear mental health distress. And seeing that story, the tragedy of that story, and thinking about it, it got me thinking, well, what do you do? What do you do? You're walking down the streets and you see someone or or even sometimes confronted by people who seem to be in distress. Um, You know, if someone were to fall on the street and hurt themselves or they look like they were having a heart issue or something, you'd kind of know what to do, right? You'd stop, you'd help. Maybe you call 911 if they're hurt. You communicate with them. But in the case of someone in mental health distress, uh, sometimes we don't, right? Like, what should you do? Should you say something? Should you call 911? Or as I think many people do, do you just keep your eyes down and keep on walking? I get the impression that's what a lot of people do. They're uncomfortable with the situation and perhaps even afraid in that situation. It's not an easy one to confront. And yet, how to help someone in mental health distress, whether a stranger or a friend, is really an essential question for a lot of us who live in inner city environments these days. So I thought it would be good at this point, uh, reflecting on that tragedy in New York, to try and get some some solid advice on what we should do. And help us do that is Johnny Morris. He's the CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association, uh, BC, and he joins me now. Johnny, thanks for your time. Thanks so much um, for that lead in, Ben, and good to be with you this evening. That, that, I mean, just the episode in New York, I mean, it's sometimes with news that comes out of America, it always seems so extreme. But watching that happen, you just thought, oh, my God, like how you can sort of picture how it would unfold. And yet I'm curious to know from your from your vantage point, you've spent a lot of time uh, working in the mental health field. What did you see there? What was your reaction to it? Uh, Well, it's a tragedy. um, and, And it's it's a, an incredibly tragic loss of life, and um, it, it does reinforce, and your comments um, triggered this for me, that, that the reality for people living with mental illness is that they're actually much more likely to be the victim of violence themselves um, right. than to, to perpetrate violence. And, and it wasn't too far from home here in B.C. recently where you know, there were alleged um, um, violent incidents against unhoused folks in Vancouver um, over recent months. So it's a stark reminder of the complexity of, of all of this and, and, and ultimately a, a tragic loss of life by someone who, who, was, in, who was in a crisis at the time of their, at their death. Is it, I know I listen to people talk about this uh, clearly on the show, we've talked about this. Are we seeing more of, of, of people, more episodes of mental health distress in public places like public transit or parks or on the street than we did in the past? Or is it just something that we're paying more attention to, do you think? That's a, it's a, a brilliant question, Ben. And, and I think it's, it's likely a mixture of things. I think much of the data we hear from uh, criminologists and other experts and, and researchers is, is that we 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 haven't been safer like like we're seeing decreases in 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 incidents of crime you know on the one hand and then of course you you see in the media and you hear reports of um um you know alleged increases or 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 um an increasing numbers of violent incidents i right. think there's a heightened visibility ben i i think public distress distress is much more in the public view 
for a whole host of, of reasons, including lack, lack of housing, lack of social supports, et cetera. Um, it, it's really important that we use care, you know, when we're looking at statistics and, and making links between things, of course. But, yeah. Um, yeah, things are probably more visible now. Yeah, and you, I really want to be be very careful not to to sort of uh, create stereotypes and so on, because that's the last thing you want to do is sort of increase, you know, increase stigmatization of people who are in these situations. Mm-hmm. When you see someone, uh, you know, I'll just give you an example. You know, here in Victoria, I, I, not too long, I was walking down the street, and someone was clearly in crisis, screaming at themselves, hitting things, and he, he was he was like Moses parting the Red Sea. People were just going. The other way from him, and I was thinking, what causes that? I mean, what 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 is happening to that individual when they're in a situation like that? Well, there can be a whole range of things, and right, in your course. comments, important. Like people, people can be in what we describe as a crisis for a whole host of reasons. They they might be feeling incredibly anxious and behaving erratically. They might be hearing things or seeing things, experiencing you know what might be called psychosis. Um, someone might be um, completely at their wit's end because they're experiencing um, a profound grief reaction. Someone might be in distress because they're contemplating hurting themselves or they might be right. suicidal. There's a whole range of why someone might be behaving in a way that causes the parting of the sea, as you said. And, and people typically have a, a reaction of, of fear and worry, as you said earlier. Um, but there can be a whole range of, of reasons um, why someone might be in that space and for for the right moment and the right time, you know, to, to check in with someone if it's safe to do so can go a long way in, in getting that person connected to, to care and support. Yeah, I, I was reading something that said, you know, a lot of us know what to do if someone falls and hurts. If, you know, if someone has a fall on the ice and hurts hurts themselves, you know, people will run to their help, to their aid and often, you know, someone will call someone will call 911. And what should we do in situations where someone is in crisis? What what what? I, I realize that every circumstance will be different, and I know you don't want to give blanket advice on these sorts of things, but what should we be looking out for? Because I think more of us are confronting these realities of seeing people that seem to be in mental health distress, and I don't think we know what to do. Yeah, and I, I think I remember one situation, too, in downtown Vancouver uh, with a person who, who was behaving erratically and shouting and and you know, might have been read as aggressive or hostile. And, and I remember approaching him um, gently. I checked for safety. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't running at me. It was a street. There were people around. I assessed the surroundings. And I asked, I asked him, how are you doing? Can I help you? And, and he'd, he'd gotten something in his eyes. His, his eyes, he was in so much pain. And, um, you know, I offered to call 911 and, and ask for an ambulance very specifically. And and so by checking in, like approaching something, once you, once you feel safe, but approaching with caution, um, compassion, um, it can go a long way, much like we would do with anyone experiencing a health emergency. But people have got to feel safe to do that. If you don't feel safe to do that, the best thing probably to do is to keep safe and, and, and keep a distance. But um, checking in on someone and, and, and um, making sure you're feeling safe can go a long way if it feels safe to do so. Is it as simple as just are you okay? It can be, I think. I think, um, you know, are you okay? I, 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 see, I see something going on here. Um, is, there, is there anything I can do to help you? And with that situation I was in, um, he, he actually declined my help and, and wandered right. off and, 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 you know, hopefully sought help of his own accord. 
but making that human contact like we would if someone was experiencing like a, a, a diabetes emergency or, or chest pain, um, I think brings some of the humanity back into to these situations of, of finding a way to respond compassionately. Yeah, I, I guess part of the stigma is that you, 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 if you don't know what's wrong, if you can't see with your own eyes what's what's wrong, often we sort of make these instant diagnoses, even as non-medical people. You sort of see someone in, in distress and make a very quick judgment about what could be wrong. And if you can't see it, um, you tend to you tend to shy away. I mean, I see it happen all the time, especially on places like public transit. That was another thing that 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 occurred to me that, it, you know, in enclosed spaces, it can feel even more threatening. And that's, I guess, you know, not not to talk about not to to opine on what happened in New York, but within public within closed spaces, things can get quite dramatic quite quickly. Um, what about in those? Is there a way to to deescalate? I mean, I know we're not people who aren't trained probably shouldn't be doing things like that. But what what kind of advice do you give to people if they find themselves in an enclosed environment like a bus or a subway car, and then something starts to happen? Yeah, I think I think there was a New York Times piece on this uh, just last week on that same question, like what do you do in an enclosed space? And of course, you know, safety first. If if you've got it, none of us, whether we're in distress or crisis, like to feel like to feel cornered or um, contained or threatened. And so, um, you know, making space if you're feeling unsafe, uh, moving if it's possible out of the enclosed environment. Um, it's, it's probably one of the safest things to do, uh, particularly in those enclosed environments. For me, my situation was on the street. There was lots of mm-hmm. space to move. Um, you're right. You know, it can feel it can feel dicey and tricky in those spaces. You know, what happened in New York, without commenting on the specifics, of course, I wasn't there. You know, is not the thing to do to kind of you know um, you know take someone down and um, and you, you you want trained help to respond to those kinds of situations. Um, you know that's probably the best I can say in those moments of moving to a place of safety and 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 calling for help. Like in communities like Toronto and in New Westminster and North Vancouver, you know, because sometimes people are hesitant to call nine one one because right. they are concerned about what happens when the police arrive. Um, there are these new civilian teams that are responding to situations where there's a lot of escalation and a lot of unpredictability. And what we're seeing in those teams, the ones we actually support here in British Columbia is actually really effective de-escalation and, and rapid calming and, and, and an ability to get that person to the right resource at the right time. Um, so in the right situation with a trained professional, you know, a good outcome can actually happen, Ben. Johnny, I, I was reading actually, I, I was obviously reading some stories of some interviews you'd done earlier before, and you did one when Victoria launched their um, launched their non-police crisis response team. And I thought it was a really interesting beginning that if people knew that there was a group that would respond to mental health crises that wasn't the police, they might be more comfortable calling them. And I guess that's what the, that's what the benefit of these teams could be in a bunch of different you know, municipalities across the country. Yes. Um, I, I mean, I think we're of the view that there are exceptional circumstances when sending um, police to a, a mental health emergency are, are warranted, and they're probably pretty clear. But what, what we're seeing across the country is is that heightened comfort that when you send a social or health emergency response, and, and here in BC, it's a peer and a mental health responder, um, that there's, there's comfort and trust. And, and we're seeing really positive results around um, the kind of experience people have when they're in crisis, when these civilian teams, as part of a broad continuum of care, when these teams respond, 
we're really excited about these pilots here in BC and, and expanding them over this next year. And the data is really showing some positive, positive signs of, of that quality of crisis care response going forward. Because as you mentioned off the top, uh, as much as perhaps bystanders can feel threatened when someone's having a a mental health crisis, it is the person in crisis that is certainly the most vulnerable to harm, either either to themselves or by, by the response that may arrive. Yeah, and that's such an important point, Ben, to to emphasize. Right, we we can't we can't forget about the vulnerability um, of the person in that moment. And we haven't talked much about um, the fact, of course, we're in a drug poisoning crisis yes. um, here in BC and Canada. And and you know your comments about um, what we do when we see someone who we might be concerned about who, who appears unconscious. Are they sleeping? What do we do? Have they overdosed? What? How do we respond? You know, these are these are complex moments and, uh, and in our lives walking around the streets and cities and it's conversations like this that at least just push on the dialogue around what it means to be a human and care about another human when they're having um, perhaps uh, one of the most serious health events of their lives in, the, in those moments on the streets. Yeah, and I think a lot of us, I think I'll speak personally, just in my case, it's, you know, I've seen, you know, over the years as a reporter, you see you see tragedy and you see trauma, but as an individual walking on the street, going to the grocery store, uh, I feel, I feel helpless. Sometimes I feel, I feel paralyzed sometimes by what's in front of me, not knowing what to do or what not to do. Yeah. We're trying to shift that conversation. You know, some hold up mental health first aid. Many of us think about first aid as a standard thing. And um, that's been a course offered. Um, we offer it too here at CMHA that can really equip folks with with some of the basics. And some of your listeners might want to learn more about that. And we've actually been operating um, a course recently for the business community. We've heard from business leaders and communities of, um, here in Victoria, for example, of what to do if someone walks into the store and they're in distress. And mm-hmm. we've done this one-hour session um, with one of our trainers here called Deescalating. And it's those basic steps of asking, uh, listening, and referring, knowing your limits, knowing how to stay safe, knowing who to call in that moment, but taking those basic steps of asking, hey, are you okay? Can I help? Looks like something's going on here. Being empathic, listening, and knowing where to refer to is, is part of the challenge. So those are two very practical ways where people can feel a stitch more confidence navigating these complex situations that can take place as you walk to the grocery store, as you said, Ben. Yeah, because of course I notice people carrying naloxone around now to try to prevent overdoses if they see someone in a situation, not for everyone, but they've been trained. And I, it just felt like, you know, the public, because we witness these, we can be part of, we can be part of the solution. Yes. Um, I mean, this was, um, this was before the pandemic where social distancing came in place and we were all told to stay as far away from each other as possible. But there was this really striking campaign in the UK, Ben, around uh, people at transit hubs like train stations or other spaces that looked like they were in distress, maybe, maybe in a place of crisis and, and contemplating hurting themselves. And their campaign was Small Talk Saves Lives. And they'd done a whole right. bunch of research around how a, a simple hello, you know, how's the weather, can actually be quite a life-saving intervention. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, how we connect with our human and and connect with someone in distress is is such an important topic in this broader context of public safety, violence, mental illness, mental health, and how it all gets balled up together. You know, we really do have to push back on that stigma too. 
And uh, for anyone who wants to go look, I was on it this morning. It's it's CMHA uh, writ large. There's one for the for the country, and then CMHA BC, of course, as well, right? Yeah, people can, people can learn about our services here in British Columbia at cmha.bc.ca and nationally at cmha.ca. And if any of your listeners are interested in learning more about PACT, which is the Peer Assisted Care Teams, we've got a whole website online about what that means and where it's available. It's not fully available across the province um, and how we're looking to expand that response here with the support of the province. Well, Johnny Morris, thank you so much for your time and your insight on this tonight. Well, and thanks for your skillful questions, Ben. Your your key part in pushing back on stigma. Really appreciate the interview. Thank you. Well, let's head to Alberta now, where everyone must be at least in fans of one of the teams. Will be happy. It's three nothing for the Oilers uh, at the end of one against uh, the Golden Knights, so they could tie up that series two two. If all continues this way, we'll pay attention to another contest first. Though it's. Uh, 10 days into the Alberta election campaign, advanced polls open in less than two weeks. Both uh, the leaders of um, the front-running parties, Danielle Smith and Rachel Notley, didn't have any public events today, as far as I can tell, which is always a bit odd at this time of a campaign, but there you have it. Uh, There were some more announcements, though, and some more controversy. Would you believe that comments made by Danielle Smith in the past on video have resurfaced once again, yet again, to land her in more hot water? First, though... We'll give the United Conservative Party their announcement of the day. They were promising to increase support for women's shelters and sexual assault counseling centers. Uh, they made that announcement in Calgary today. Tanya first says a UCP government would increase funding by $20 million over four years for shelters and other safety initiatives. United Conservatives will ensure women's shelters in Alberta can help more women, children, and families with a $10 million funding increase. Albertans are looking for a government with a credible plan to address the increasing crime in our communities while protecting survivors. Now, I'm sure they all hoped that that would be the um, the announcement of the day, right? Instead, it felt like things were once again taken over by something of the past, the skeletons in the closet of Danielle Smith. So the NDP was busy attacking her after yet another video surface showing a Smith proposing to sell off hospitals to private operators. The video was shot back in October of 2021 before Smith became premier. Shows are suggesting a way to sell hospitals such as Rocky View, Peter Lougheed, and South Health, Health Campus in Calgary. Um, it, the NDP are calling and of course, uh, that Smith's views continue to raise concern. Smith herself has said that it's time to move on from the, quote, dark days of the pandemic, as she apologized for comments she made as a journalist and a pundit. Uh, And this came right after she apologized on Monday, or this was the apology, I guess, uh, for a video podcast she recorded back in November of 2021, where she drew a parallel between the 75% of Albertans who had been vaccinated against COVID and those who supported uh, the Nazis in Nazi Germany. Um, And she also wasn't wearing a Remembrance Day poppy in protest of public health measures that year. was right before. It was the 10th of November, I guess, 2021. Here's what she had to say about I noticed you're not wearing a poppy. I'm not wearing a poppy, but they ruined it for me this year. The uh, the political leaders standing on their soapbox, pretending that they care about all the things that you just talked about, pretending they understand the sacrifice and not understanding that their actions are exactly the actions that uh, our brave men and women in uniform are fighting against. Yeah. Um Joining me now with more on all of this is Dave Breckenridge, a regular on the show. Always nice to have him here, editor of the Edmonton Journal and Edmonton Sun, host of the 10-3 podcast, which features, I believe, something really interesting on Pickleball this uh, this week. But we'll talk about the election first. Wow. I mean, we're 10 days in, Dave. And uh, welcome, by the way. I'm, I'm sorry to take you away from the game. 
Yeah, I mean, we can talk about that first period. Wow, I tell you. So, <laughs> no you know, kidding. Great depth scoring by the Oilers. And, sorry, <laughs> politics. Right, politics. Politics. Here we are. We're, we're, ten, we're 10 days in, so the first period is over, essentially, in this, uh, in this campaign, more or less, um, in this 30-day campaign. Uh, what would you say, I mean, other than, I mean, I'm watching it from B.C., so other than these videos that keep popping up of Danielle Smith saying outrageous stuff in the past on these who knows what podcasts um is that really been the defining part of this campaign so far i think so and in some ways it's just a testament to the fact that we've been in campaign mode in alberta since at least the beginning of this year if not you know i can cast my mind back to 2022 and the ndp was announcing their own policy well in advance of the election saying you know this is something that we'll do in healthcare this is something we'll do in education if we become government next spring everyone has announced everything i mean even in the lead up to the the election campaign the ucp government was reannouncing things that were in the budget and essentially like all governing parties do in the lead up to an election campaigning on the public purse um so you have this situation where there's not much more for them to announce. I mean, there are announcements, as as you played the clip of Tanya Fur off the top with the the UCP announcement relating to to women's shelter and and sexual uh, assault centers. Um, there are things to announce, but it's because there aren't any real big ticket transformational ideas to announce. We get into Oppo research, and it you know the NDP <laughs> is is having a bit of a field day, right? And I mean, today's well, today's felt a little off compared to the one earlier this week. So yes. we have Danielle Smith at a healthcare conference talking about, well, how do you make Alberta health services better? You essentially make them compete with the private sector. And if they can't run hospitals efficiently, maybe we don't let them run hospitals anymore. And we open it up to somebody else. And this is Danielle Smith as a pundit in 2021. And I get that isn't a long time ago, but also in politics, it is a long time ago. She wasn't indicating she was going to run for leader. And so she's speaking from this philosophical perspective of, well, maybe that's a better way to run the healthcare system. And and the, and the NDP can debate all they want, whether this means that the UCP is going to bring in a private healthcare system and dismantle AHS. And Daniel Smith is free to say, but that's not what I'm campaigning on. And it's up to voters, I guess, to, to decipher all of that and whether they believe one side or the other. Yeah. I mean, the NDP clearly are really hitting hard on this idea that there's some sort of hidden agenda about privatizing healthcare, uh, and, 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 for, and, you know, for, for good reason. It makes sense for them to, to sell that one. It's, it's a good one. Um, but it feels like, from afar at least, that this has sort of become, and I'm not sure, and I, I really wanted to get your opinion on this, that it feels like it's become a referendum about leadership, specifically Danielle Smith's leadership. Yeah, and I, I mean, it, it, it was bound to be that in a, for a lot of reasons. Um, namely the fact that Daniel Smith has a, a past in politics that didn't end well the last time. Um, and she has been a media figure for many, many years and has taken public positions that many find controversial. And, you know, even if she's moved on from holding those positions, as she, as she says that she has in many cases, it's whether the people can trust that the person that she's presenting herself as now is the person who she's going to be as premier. Um, but on the flip side, you also have an opposition leader who was formerly the premier of the province as well and hold some baggage there. And there were a lot of people who may have voted for the NDP in 2015 because they were upset about the 
great floor process between Daniel Smith and Jim Prentice right. and the PC and the Wild Rose coming together were just fed up, and so they didn't feel they could vote for any of these parties. There were a lot of people who were maybe kind of to the center and thought, well, maybe we'll give the NDP a try. And then they became, quote-unquote, the accidental government because no one expected them to win. I mean, there are a lot of factors that played into that win, vote splitting on the right because the Wild Rose didn't disappear as I think Daniel Smith hoped that it would when she and her and some of her MLAs crossed the floor, and so there was a vote split on the right. But you have a track record in office. The carbon tax, when it was brought in in Alberta, was very unpopular. There were bills around um, farms and WCB and whether this would hurt farm families that didn't go over very well in rural Alberta. Um, There was huge spending increases and debt increases in the the provincial debt under the NDP that people were unhappy about. So the question on some voters' minds is, well, what will the NDP do differently this time or what will they do that's the same so you have a kind of a referendum on two senses of leadership is daniel smith the person in the videos the ndp is releasing or is she the person that she purports to be on the campaign trail and is rachel notley the same rachel notley who i didn't like after four years of ndp government back in 2019 or is she different now yeah, and it feels like that uh, the entire campaign is really being tar- targeted to a fairly small number of voters who are un- who don't have a position on either one of those things yet. Yeah, and I, I mean, if you look at opinion polls, even like people, the the NDP has like ninety seven percent of the base sewn up, right? And I think the, yeah. the number for Daniel Smith and uh, the UCP is a little lower because you know, a there was a very divisive leadership contest. Smith won with just maybe 53% of the vote and change compared to 46 and change for Travis Taves. And so there were some, some fissures in the, in the UCP uh, last year around the leadership. And so they may not have their base all sewn up, but there, but essentially it's, you know, the, the UCP and the NDP competing for a small segment of the, the voting population who may still have an open mind about it. But I think, you know, as the weeks go on, the, the race is just going to be tighter and tighter. It, it, I, I don't see, if we were to see opinion polling in the next week and a half, I don't see it getting any, like the, the lead for either leader, depending on who, what poll you look at, the NDP is ahead or the UCP is ahead. I don't see that gaining ground at this point. Yeah, playoff hockey. Uh, <laughs> Dave Breckenridge <laughs> is with us, editor of the Edmonton Journal of Edmonton Sun, host of the 10-3 podcast. My sense is the new passport design, which was the result of consultation with a number of different groups that provided feedback, uh, reflects who we are as Canadians and is going to help ensure the security of our travel document and universal acceptance for many years to come. That was Refugee and Immigration Minister Sean Fraser, the federal one in uh, Ottawa today, announcing uh, changes to our passport. So they've beefed up the security. Uh, you could apply for a, a renewal online, which they hadn't done before. That should save people a bit of grief on a uh, secure website they've also changed the way it looks so there's a new cover that has sort of what you'd recognize in a kind of an outline of a maple leaf that looks like a team canada hockey jersey and they took out all the historical moments that the conservatives had put in had suggested be put in 10 years ago even though bureaucrats told them not to so that was like vimy ridge and the last spike and the fathers of confederation and 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 terry fox all gone so, of course, people are upset because, like, wait a second, there's all these generic pictures of, like, people, you know, someone kayaking and birds and someone raking leaves. And it's all kind of what looks like the euro a little bit. Dave, did you have a chance to look at, at what the changes were? What did you think? I, yeah, I, 
I read about it before I saw the photos, and then I right. looked at the photos, and I thought to myself, so this is what we're going to get worked up about this week in Canada. Like, <laughs> Of course. I, you know, and I, I, I did see some of the controversy around the, the notion that they're taking out historical figures and the Legion's upset about the removal of the Vimy Memorial and there are people who yeah. are upset about the removal of, of Terry Fox. At the end of the day, I wonder, and I could be wrong, but had anyone really looked at their passport before this and really kind of looked at what was in it? I hadn't. I hadn't used right. much in the last few years, obviously. Not True enough. None of, us did. None, of us did. None of us did. They've been sitting in drawers for <laughs> but, since March of 2020. Yeah. But is it the kind of thing that people we're really paying attention to like, Oh wow. I look at that. Check out that cool image of the fathers of confederation and wow, the last spike and all like, is that the kind Our of thing page. that is really going to set people's hair on fire? I mean, sure. If the notion of, of the imagery that you include in a passport is, is a way to, to help people identify famous things about Canada. Sure. Put in some, you know, maybe update them, include the golden goal at the Vancouver 2010 Olympics a right. speech bubble with Sidney Crosby yelling Iggy, <laughs> get really people really hyped up. <laughs> but but yeah. at the end of the day, it's like, I, you know, once I get the new one, I'm going to care what images are in it. I know. No, the, I, I, like, yeah. Like, I, I know what kind of comes is there's been debate. I know there were some stories about the notion that the Canada has a new crown and it's coat of arms and it's taking away yes. like religious symbolism. And there's, you know, there's a sense that, among some that perhaps the current federal government is not exactly like big on Canadian history. And that may be the case. And if that's the case, that's problematic because Canada, while it has problematic periods in its history is a country with a history and there are parts about it that we should celebrate. um, And Canadians do celebrate. So while I feel like perhaps the controversy over this may be a little, at least personally, because it's not something that I really thought about until I read the story like, hey, what is in my passport? I haven't looked at my passport. But at the same time, if like, is this something that Canadians really need to spend a lot of time on? I don't know. And I, you know, no. I know in the media, like it's a big story and people are reading it and probably getting frothy at the mouth over it. And I just think, well, maybe you shouldn't. In the grand scheme of things, it's not a big thing. Keep in mind, though, that 10 years ago when the conservatives ignored the bureaucrats who said, put those generic pictures of flowers and people in kayaks in the passports, it'll all be very non-controversial. They said, you know what? We're going to do something different. We're going to put... We're going to put pictures of Canadian history in here. And people actually quite liked it. I mean, it was controversial at the time. So it seems every time this happens, everyone gets a little frothy about it, depending which side of this, you know, what you maybe what you think about the current federal government. And, you know, I, I, I still think they should have found a way to keep Terry Fox in there. Though. That's oh, why. for sure. They could have put Sidney Crosby's golden goal, but they should have found a way to keep Terry Fox in. Yeah, for, and I can, you know, like I said, I can, un- yeah. I can understand. Like, there, there are people, or there were, like, the Vimy Memorial is a is and the Vimy Ridge is a huge it is piece of our military history and and people I can understand why people would be upset to remove that or I can understand why people would be upset to remove Terry Fox cuz he is an icon in in Canadian culture uh, you know this notion of perseverance amid health trouble amid tragedy amid 
looming death. Like he is, he's the ultimate. Yeah. <laughs> he's the ultimate. I, I don't. I'm, I'm at a loss for words now. But he, we are. He, I mean, he well, there's, a, there's not a, many a ways. Symbol of, of something that we all strive to strive toward when in in the face of of challenge and and so yeah i agree that you know maybe they could have found a way to keep some of it and not do away with all of it and maybe if they had done that people wouldn't have gotten so upset about about the changes but at the same time i don't know i'm gonna I'll someone get my would have new one upset. when my old one expires and then i'll Indeed. maybe use it or maybe not yeah, exactly. I, I only have 30 seconds. So it, pickleball, good or bad? Pickleball, good or bad? You, you, well, you talked about it. You know, I, I'm, I'm wary of trying any new sport now as I, as I age. And so, <laughs> Me too. So, but I understand, like, it's, it's, huge, it's bizarre. Like, it just kind of caught on. I know people who picked it up during the pandemic, and it yeah. just seems like an odd sport to really catch fire for everybody. But, hey, if it gets you out and moving around, I won't be doing it. I like sedentary stuff. But if it gets you out and moving around, all the better. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I, I run by a pickleball court all the time. It's usually packed. People look really happy. Uh, there we go. Well, Dave, thanks. I'll let you get back to the game. It's still 3 nothing for the Oilers, in case you were wondering. Uh, Dave Breckenridge, thanks so much. Thanks, Ben. Let me take you back to April of 2014. Hundreds of young girls, fast asleep in their beds, are awakened by the sound of gunfire. Armed attackers have stormed their boarding school and set fire to dozens of buildings. Nearly 300 of them are dragged from their dorm, loaded onto trucks, and carried away deep into the forest. That was CNN's Vladimir uh, uh, Duthier back in April of 2014. I remember that day distinctly. That was the day that the world found out that nearly 300 girls had been kidnapped in Nigeria by a group that few had ever heard of called Boko Haram. Uh, they had claimed responsibility. Uh, it was, in fact, 257. Uh, about 50 had escaped quickly. Many others did not. Boko Haram, we then learned, of course, was an Islamist militant group uh, in the area that sort of based themselves on the Taliban, very anti-education, very anti-education for girls particularly. Uh, high school students, some as young as 12, were forced or sold into marriage. They were stolen. They weren't the first. The group had kidnapped hundreds of others over the years and would go on kidnapping more, but they were certainly the most high profile. It's unclear today how many are still missing, likely more than 100. We don't know how many didn't survive, um, but some were released. Some did escape, and that's the story my next guest set out to tell here. Uh, Canadian journalist Melissa Fung, of course, was taken hostage herself and held captive for a month in Afghanistan in 2008. So she comes to this story with unique perspective. Over four years, she traveled to Nigeria several times, meeting and getting to know some of those who had been held hostage, who had been held captive by Boko Haram. Part of that journey was the subject of a TVO documentary by Fung released in, uh, recently called Captive. Here it is. The notion of captivity is... It's easy to define it because obviously um, if you're held hostage, if you're kidnapped, you're a captive. But how that stays with you, I think, is another form of captivity. So you can imagine the bond that she would share with those who had been held captive uh, and then by Boko Haram and then what life would be like after, even though they're of different ages from different parts of the world, speak different languages, were held in different circumstances. But the bond is there. And it's that bond that Melissa explores in a new book uh, called Between Good and Evil, The Stolen Girls of Boko Haram, a story of captivity, of anger, grief, trauma, 
survival, but ultimately the story of these young women and what their lives were like that during, before, during, and after um, their experience. Melissa Fung joins me now from London. Melissa, thank you. Congratulations. Thank you for having me, Ben. It's nice to be with you. You know, I was reading just sort of the, through the preamble, and um, there's a really impactful passage where you talk about finding out because I remember the day that it had happened because I remember thinking wow that's a lot of people and I, how could that happen and who, where are they and who are they but it must have hit you in many different ways uh, take me back to them yeah I, you know it was April I was living in Washington then right. and woke up to the news that 276 girls had been taken from their school overnight kidnapped on mass. And I just, it took me a while to get my head around that. You know, how could this happen? Where is this happening? Who are these people? And so, you know, began my sort of reading up, studying up Boko Haram. And I found out that, you know, this was a terrorist group that operated in northeastern Nigeria. And they actually modeled themselves after the Taliban. Boko Haram translates to Western education is forbidden. And so the fact that they took these girls from their school and took them into the Sambisa forest um, to, to keep them captive was just, it was horrifying for me because I could just imagine what they were going through. I mean, you know, I had my own experience being a captive. Uh, and so it was, you're right, just kind of hit me a little differently. Yeah, it was, it was um, just imagining what they would be going through in those early moments, right? That what the initial shock and fear would be like for such a large group of such young, young girls. Really young girls, you know, what were they thinking with these guns pointed at them with these men sort of leering at them, spending their first night in the forest, you know, how scared they must've been. Uh, And, and so I, you know, I think I, I understood some of that and it, made me worry about them from from that first day. But the more I found out about the group and their activities, the more I realized that these 276 girls were just a fraction of the girls they had been taking hostage. And, you know, since since they really started wreaking havoc across the region and nobody could really estimate how many girls had actually gone missing, which, you know, I also as a journalist and i think you I, you might have covered this as well mm-hmm. but it was hard to believe right like how could all these girls and women be missing and it's not a bigger story i i remember finding out that those 276 i think of which several several i mean a certain number i think in the 215s or so on ended up being captive long term but finding out that they hadn't been in school for three weeks because of security concerns and had only gone back that day to write their exams when they were taken and it sort of it was that light bulb where you think well wait a second this must be a huge problem that we've never spoken about and how can that be and then i remember just the the eruption of coverage with bring back hashtag bring back our girls and all that and 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 how much focus there was on it and then there wasn't and then there wasn't and i was interested to know that right about the time that there wasn't was kind of the time that you turned your eyes to it and said we can't forget about these these women and and these girls no that, that's that's true you know and there was so much coverage there was you had michelle obama holding up the bring back our girls sign in a hashtag and and then nothing happened there was great pressure on, I think there was even pressure on the U.S. government to mount a rescue operation for mm. these girls, you know, and eventually I think the government 
brokered the release of more than a hundred of them. But there were all these girls still missing. There were the girls before the Chibok incident, right? And and then you know you start learning out, finding out more, and and it turns out that there are often, not very often at the time, but you know, rescue missions that the Nigerian military mounts and goes into the forest and. And they had also asked some of the local hunting groups to join in what they call a, a civilian task force to help them uh, look for some of these missing women and girls. And and some of them had been rescued, in fact, and some had been able to escape uh, captivity. And so, you know, finding that out and what I was now interested in is how are they coping with the trauma? Because, you know, my own captivity only lasted a month but years later I still even with you know the help of the best trauma therapists in the country still suffer post-traumatic stress and I thought in that part of the world where you know psychiatry is relatively new concept how could these girls be coping without any sort of that kind of help and so I sort of embarked on a you know, I wanted to know, I wanted to find out um, how they dealt with their trauma. I wanted to see what I could learn from them. And so that's how it all started. I, I guess we so often think of the rescue as being the end, the happy ending to the story. And of course, it so often isn't, right? Uh, were you at all concerned about about diving back into it, reliving part of what you had, you had experienced in trying to, I mean, in, in trying to to find a way to tell these girls stories of captivity? I knew that some of it would would bring back some of that trauma for me, definitely. But I was more concerned about re-traumatizing the girls because right. I know what that feels like to be on the other side of a reporter's microphone, you know, and, and to be asked to sort of relive your captivity you know, and then what happened, and then what happened, and then you go through it again. And then when the cameras are off and the mics, tape recorders, well, microphones now are, are taken away, you sit in that trauma alone. And so I was very careful not to do that to the girls. And so what happened was we ended up having conversations. And it was, they were very curious about my own captivity, they asked me lots of questions about Afghanistan, about what my kidnappers did to me, about what they fed me, about how they treated me, about where I was held. And so I was really open with them about all of that. And then they were able to sort of say, well, that's not what it was like for us. We weren't held in a hole in the ground. You know, we actually had to cook for these men who we they were married off to. We lived in the open in the forest. And so it, it was a sharing of stories. And and in that way, both me and the girls felt we had a safe space to talk about this very traumatic thing that we had all been through. Melissa Fung, longtime journalist, is our guest this half hour. Her new book is called Between Good and Evil, The Stolen Girls of Boko Haram. I wasn't shocked to read in your book that they were that many of those who managed to get who to leave uh, captivity were then shunned by their own when they got home. And just from your perspective, um, and you've mentioned this already, you know how much the after 
matters, how much the, the, the help you get after the fact matters. And then the idea that after the fact you would you'd be turned out of your own community was was I found one of the one of the really tragic parts of your of your book. But yet there is a there is a silver lining to that tragedy that you touch on as well. Definitely. I mean that was trauma upon trauma, Ben, right? Here they've escaped Boko Haram and they go back to their communities and the communities see them as wives of Boko Haram. Some of them have borne the children of their kidnappers. And so it was, they had to find community among themselves. And so I was lucky enough to go home with them to one of the communities where a lot of these women had lived together in the forest. And when they had managed to escape or been rescued and couldn't go back to their homes for whatever reason, whether they were being shunned or whether those communities had been destroyed by Boko Haram, they formed their own community. And it's a community of survivors. And it's a community where it's mostly women and their children. And they are able to talk about what happened to them in the forest. And that really that really stuck with me. I, I, you know, I spent some time there and all these women came out to talk to me because they saw me as somebody who would understand that this kind of trauma sharing was their way of coping with what had happened to them. And so it was really a powerful part of the book where I I write about that, those women and, and what they've managed to build on their own you know, because there were no supports, their own communities turned them away. But yet they have, they've built for themselves a very vibrant, loving, accepting community for survivors. One of the, and, and, and you know, there is some very difficult parts of this book, no doubt the subject matter is is difficult, but when you emerge from it, there is a theme that you return to a lot. And it made me think of you too, this idea of not being broken. It's true. You know, I talk about, I don't talk about it in the book because the for the in the book it's really the girls' stories themselves. Right. Um, I wanted to give them the agency to to tell their own story. Not being broken, I the, one of the first times I met the girls, one of the girls in the book, Asma, was only twelve. Ben, when she was taken into the forest, well, and I think you know her her story is is quite tragic. But I told them about uh, my kidnappers. She asked me if my kidnappers had hurt me. So I showed them the scar on my shoulder and then on the back of my right hand um, where I had been stabbed. And she held my hand and she ran her finger over my scar, kept running her finger over my scar. And then she showed me her right hand and she had a scar very similar to mine a little higher up, closer to her fingers. And she said, look, that's what they did to me too. And it was a very sort of powerful, powerful moment where, you know, we recognized that we shared a, a similar wound. And then years later, you know, I, I mean, I'd been going back and forth to, to see them over the course of many years. And Asma on one of the visits uh, took my hand again, just to kind of make sure the scar was still there, right. you know, and I said, of course, it's still there. And hers was still there, too. And I said to her, it um, didn't break us, 
didn't break us. They hurt us, but they didn't break us. And she nodded. She said, yeah, that's, that's, we're not broken, Melissa. We're not broken. Melissa Fung, uh, the book is called Between Good and Evil, The Stolen Girls of Boko Haram. Thank you so much for sharing that with me today. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. I thought we would revisit a topic that we actually discussed about six, six, eight months ago, which is tipping. It's because we're heading into the summer and a lot more people will be doing a little bit of traveling, maybe going out a little bit more. You know, it's nice when the weather is good in this country specifically. Uh, it's always nice to, uh, you know, to sit out on a patio somewhere if you can, all those things. And you'll have noticed, because I was paying attention to it again over the weekend, that once again, we are being asked to tip more and in more places than uh, than you may remember. <laughs> Than ever before, really. Now, I'm not at all opposed to the notion of tipping. I've lived in countries like the UK where you don't tip, or at least you don't tip much. You know, in uh, China, you don't tip. Um, you know, there are places where literally tipping is not part of the routine, whether anywhere, whether it be a restaurant or a bar, it doesn't matter. You do not tip. Nobody does. I mean, occasionally you can. Um, you know, you could, there are other ways of, of, of tipping. You can buy someone something, you know, there are different ways of doing it in England, especially. But really, there is no tipping culture, or very little, very little of one. And it's a big, could be a big culture shock when people come to this country and realize how much of our culture uh, tipping is, how much of a part of our culture is. So I'm not obviously not against tipping. It's part of what we do here. Um, but I do box sometimes at like 25% for what is basically pretty standard service or being asked to tip, you know, 18% at the coffee shop when you're when you're getting a coffee um it feels like there's been tipping creep or tipflation they call it now i thought well how do you tackle you know if you're not entirely incensed by it but you'd like to see some sanity come back to it what do you do so i sort of decided a little while back you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna tip 15 percent, 15 or 18 15 mostly unless the service is phenomenal or unless it's someone I go to all the time, like someone I, I, I frequent, you know, somewhere where I'm a, I'm a, regular, a regular. So 15% is sort of what I tried to lay down. Now, I don't always obey it, but I try to do it that way. Um, because as my next guest put, points out, uh, tipping inflation has become sort of a well-established societal norm in this country. And, you know, while technology, like not having to pay cash, paying with your card all the time, makes that nudging, tip nudging, uh, a lot easier. Um, with the increased cost of everything, like, you know, groceries and um, anything you go out for, really, anytime you, anytime you buy anything, it seems more expensive now than it was two years ago, uh, that it feels like we're kind of being, getting a bit of a double whammy because prices are up, tips are up. So when you walk out of a place like a, you know, I don't know, any, even like a fast food place, it feels like you have a lot less money than you did in the past. It feels a lot less affordable. So are there any sane solutions to this? Ones that could be a nice middle ground in this whole debate where you don't rail against the service industry for, for sort of suggesting that you tip. You're not, they're not forcing you, they're nudging you, right? But at the same time, you also try to bring some sanity into it so that the tipping part of your meal doesn't feel like an uncomfortable part of your meal. Uh, Mike Von Masso is an associate professor in food, agricultural, and resource economics at the University of Guelph. He looks into this stuff a lot, and he joins me now. Mike, thank you for your time. Well, thanks for having me, Ben. You know, I, I hear people talk about this all the time now. And uh, it was interesting that, that you that you brought it up in a, with a personal experience as well. But I think we've all encountered that moment now. In, in many, in, an, in a huge array of retail environments and, and service environments where suddenly, you know, you, you get your, 
you get the machine to pay and you're offered a selection of tips that looks surprisingly high uh, if, yes. if you're not if you're not used to it when did when did that start to happen do you think well i i, I think I think this evolution was happening for some time already. We were seeing the power of a nudge. And as the technology allowed for these cues or these nudges, people put in and then sort of tested the limits. I think what sort of accelerated it was the fact that many of us tipped more during during the lockdowns uh, when we ordered from these restaurants, local neighborhood institutions, you know, we, we had personal relationships with some of these places. We knew these people were struggling. And so we tipped a little more uh, during the pandemic. And some people interpreted that as, well, this is going to go on like this forever. And so the expectation increased. The other thing I think has happened, uh, and this isn't necessarily unique to the food service business, is the fact that it's harder to get people. You know, there's a labor crisis. It's harder to get people. And if as managers, we can nudge people to tip more, it becomes a more attractive job to have. And so I think those factors supercharged the the move to higher tips uh, that we've seen. And to a degree, while we're starting to talk about pushback, that pushback hasn't come and pushback will be what moderates it. I wonder why. I mean, I think a lot of people talk about it. At the same time, I think there is a sympathy, there is a certain amount of sympathy for people who work hard in the service industry, right? You understand that it's a bit of a conflict. I mean, I was out with my wife on the weekend and, uh, you know, the machine comes, the service, the server is there. The service has been good and your options are like 18, 20 or 25. And as we're leaving, it's like, wow, you know, I tipped 20%. That seems really high. But the server was right there and I didn't want, you know, there is a certain amount of pressure around it. And you had similar experiences as well recently. You were mentioning one over the weekend. Well, I think think we see see these things happening all the time. I was out just this week with a friend who's in the restaurant business. And we were talking about tipping. The general manager of the bar we were sitting in having a beer was sitting right there as well. And we talked about average tip and we talked about with my friend what his machine prompts to do. And then I was paying the bill for the beers. And all of a sudden, the prompt started at 20, even though my friend had said theirs was 15, 20 or 25. This one started at 20, 20, 25, 30. It's in kind of a tourist place, fewer regulars. uh, And so they may feel like they can push a little harder. But the problem becomes your last experience the last impression you get, which we know is the most important one from psychology research, the last impression you get is one of a certain amount of discomfort. You know, you're thinking, wow, as you said, I, you know, I tipped, uh, I think, 25. I said, wow, I tipped 25. Yeah, the service was good, but that's a lot. And I probably tipped on the tax because I did the prompt and then it takes the total things that people don't often think about. And, And so in the end, I had something of an uncomfortable experience at the end of what was a relatively positive one. And I'm not sure that that's in the best interest of these operations. No, I I, I don't think it is. And yet, at the same time, part of the issue here is that, I mean... the sur- if the people in the service industry aren't making enough money to survive, which I think is often the problem in big cities all across the country with the cost of, of living so high, with the cost of accommodation so high, 
and yet who does it fall upon? I mean, would you rather tip 25% or have that on your, you know, have that added to the food prices so that servers make a living wage? It's kind of a, it's a bit of a catch 22. So you sometimes wonder, okay, well, where is, is the money going right to the server? Is it, is it because, uh, you know, businesses are passing on the expense of their employees to to the customer. I mean it's it's a really strange dynamic because and you mentioned it with inflation and then with with service charges up you really do feel like you're you're getting dinged every time you go out and are served something. And 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 you don't want to feel that way. It's it's an you mentioned it, it's an uncomfortable thing. Yeah, you 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 raised three points I'd like to respond to there Ben if you if you'll indulge me. Sure. The first is is the point of tip creep places where, you know, maybe a coffee shop where there used to be a, a, a jar with a witty statement where you might put your change after you bought a cup of coffee. Now, because almost nobody carries cash and almost all of these transactions and being nudged to tip and, and, and it becomes much more explicit and you have to opt out of tipping rather than opting in. All of those things are, I think, are, are increasing the discomfort. This, the second point I think that that's important to make is that the tip generally servers get the tips now there is something called a tip out where servers pay a certain proportion of their tips to people in the kitchen to people who support them the bartender the bussers perhaps the person greeting people at the door so there is some there is some sharing different places do it differently some of them put it all in a pool and all the servers get the get get the same share and that really encourages people it reduces competition and encourages people to work together and support a table that might not be theirs because if they tip well, then uh, everyone does better. But the thing to remember is that this is tipping the server and the server isn't the only low paid person in a restaurant or in fact, anywhere in the food system. And so I would argue that the irony is one of the reasons we have cheap food and notwithstanding the the food inflation we've had recently, is the fact that from farm labor to to restaurants and grocery stores, these people are among the lowest paid people in the entire economy. And so we've come up with things like tipping, which is an arbitrary way to pay servers more, but it doesn't do anything for the people in the kitchen, uh, and so or, or very little for people in the kitchen. So frankly, I would agree with you, you know, we should pay people more, but I would argue that perhaps tipping isn't the best way to do that. Michael Van Masso is with us. He's an associate professor in food, agricultural and resource economics at the University of Guelph. We're talking about tipping. I think all of us are kind of experts at this in some way, shape or form. Um, I'm always interested, Michael. I mean, I lived in, in China for a while. I lived in the UK for quite a while, you know, in, in places where tipping is not part of the culture. And uh there's a very different attitude towards it. I mean, in the UK, you're often, it's not that people don't want, if you leave a tip, it's not that they won't take it, but it, it suggests a power dynamic uh, within the relationship that isn't always that accepted if you're in a pub, for instance. In Canada, you mentioned it earlier. I mean, if, if customers don't push back, it'll just continue. Uh, but how, how would you push back effectively and how much do you want to push back? I think that's kind of the ethical dilemma we all find ourselves in these days. Two, two points, Ben. The first is, I'd like to see us move away from tipping. I'd like to say, okay, we should acknowledge the value that restaurants create. We should acknowledge that, you know, it's not just the food, it's the service, it's the entire experience and places that do well, we should pay more. And and I'd much rather uh, just pay more for my meal and not have that uncomfortable moment at the end. 
if you look at some of the surveys that have happened, many Canadians feel the way I do. And so I think there's some discomfort in the industry of moving away, and it's difficult for individual restaurants to move away. But to me, the ideal would be, let's pay what it's worth, make sure people get paid a fair amount to work in these jobs, and uh, and then and then move on. There are, and I'm happy to talk about them, there are a lot of problems within a restaurant operation that have to do with tips uh, that that we could get we could get rid of uh, if we got rid of tips. Now that's not going to happen between now and next Christmas. Uh, and so, what can we do as individuals? One thing to remember is tips. There's no law about tipping. There's no rule that you have to tip twenty percent or twenty five percent or whatever. We are being nudged to tip, and the evidence is that most of us tip within a fairly narrow window because we feel it's a social norm. There's someone looking over our shoulder and and we feel some sort of pressure. We've all heard stories of servers chasing people out of the restaurant after they didn't tip very well, all of those sorts of things. None of us want that discomfort, but there is no rule. And, and so we all have the option of opting out of the nudge and putting in our own percentage. We have the option of saying, I'm going to tip 15 or maybe even 20% on the bill, but not on the tax that's on top of it. You know, I remember the good old days where you sort of looked at the tax amount and that was kind of how much you tipped and you put that number in. We, we still have the prerogative and the wherewithal to do that. I think restaurants are also going to see a real opportunity to say, I was in a, I was in a restaurant not long ago and it didn't have a prompt. It said, would you like to tip? Yes. How much would you like to tip? Would you like to tip a percentage or an amount? And it didn't make a suggestion and I noticed it and I, it made me happier. And I actually said that to the server. And she said to me, it's amazing how many people come back and say, yeah, exactly. That makes me happier. And so if people are, are more comfortable with that, then eventually these places are going to say, well, we're nudging people too high. We need to pull back on it a bit, or we need to stop nudging them and, and, and we'll do just as well. And people will be happier. Uh, and perhaps individually, we just have to decide as customers where we're going to tip, where we're not going to tip, and how much we're going to tip under certain circumstances. I mean, I think it's it's not an easy choice to make, but but maybe it's the one that'll make us feel more comfortable. If you walk into every establishment saying, you know, I don't tip if someone, I don't tip someone to get something from the from the freezer for me, right? Or yeah, uh, you know, th those sorts of setting some ground rules for yourself instead of sort of allowing yourself to be carried away by this tide. <laughs> Well, it's exactly right, Ben. You know, I was not long ago in my local bottle shop. I'm a craft beer fan. And literally, the person turned around, grabbed a six-pack out of the fridge, put it on the counter in front of me, rang it in, and then I paid, and I was prompted to, to tip 20%. Maybe I'm a grumpy old curmudgeon, but I, I didn't really feel that that was the same as somebody waiting on my table and bringing me or even bringing me beers at a table over over time if i was with some friends well that would have been different but i but i felt in that circumstance that was not something i was comfortable with now did i have a moment of mike you're being cheap yes i came i came away and said yeah i feel comfortable with that and and so remember it's not a law or a regulation it is a choice and and we have the prerogative to resist that social pressure we do, but we are creatures of society, so we don't like to disappoint. Mike Von Masso, thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me, Ben. Have a great day. If you listen to the show frequently, you'll probably know I'm a big music fan. 
all eras recently, but I've had a soft spot for the 80s. The music of our youth always seems to occupy a bit of a special place in our soul. I also know just about every hit song within a few bars, right? That's how that's how much music I listened to back then. I used to buy 45s and listen to the radio nonstop and all the things that kids did in the 70s and the 80s and before and maybe a little less after. Uh, well, back in the 80s, there was this big change in Canadian popular music uh, in about the mid-80s with the arrival of much music. I think that really helped fuel it in videos. We talked about this on the show a while back. And the surge of a bunch of new bands, uh, suddenly the pop charts in this country had a pretty Canadian feel to them. These are names, these are not like, you know, clearly there was the Brian Adamses and the Corey Hartz who sold boatloads of records. But there were lots of other bands like Gowan and Luba and Platinum Blonde, Idle Eyes, Honeymoon Suite, um, Glass Tiger, Chalk Circle, One to One, Cask and Fly, The Box, Haywire, tons. And you'll recognize those names because they all had pretty decent hits. Part of that surge uh, in that time was a Vancouver band called Strange Advance. They'd released their first album called Worlds Away in 83. It had been nominated for the Juno for Most Promising Group, losing to the Paolas. And in 85, they released their signature track and second album. The track was called We Run. We played it just out of the last uh, last segment. And then they were nominated for Group of the Year at the Juno's Parachute Club won that one. But still, you know, they were on a roll. They were one of those bands in the mid-80s in Canada that people were listening to, that people were talking about. They had one more album uh, a few years later, and then they vanished. The band basically took a 30-year break before they got back together again in 2016. Well, now they've been on tour a few times. Now they're heading out on their 40th anniversary tour, celebrating that first album back in 1983. And they're making several stops in several provinces. And given how much I liked We Run when it came out, I still have it on my playlist. I have the 45 lying around somewhere. Um, we asked the band's co-founder and lead singer, Drew Arnott, to take us back in time to those heady days of the 80s and to tell us more about the new tour. And he, uh, Drew joins us now. Thanks so much for your time tonight thank you very much i'm very happy to be out there it's it, it might, i mean tell me a bit about about uh about coming back because uh you, you took a lot of time off uh, a couple of decades actually and then decided to three come, to be exact three, three decades that's in the music business that is a that is a lifetime uh what it certainly you, is <laughs> what made you decide that it was it was time to time to head back out and and see your fans again well you know, the, after the 80s uh, uh, came the 90s and, and grunge, etc. And and musical tastes had changed considerably. And I, I basically just consider myself a songwriter. That's what I do. So I, I kept doing songs, but clearly, we, you know, we, uh, the new wave thing was, you know, done. So and uh, so I'm always, I'm easily entertained. You know, I could sit there at a piano or a guitar or whatever and, and, and write songs and amuse myself. And, and I ended up, you know, working with other artists, producing and whatever. So, you know, I was keeping busy. But it re really, over the years, Daryl and I would talk about the idea of putting the band back on the road and getting back out there doing something. And then it was when Bowie passed away that we realized, oh, man, if it's ever going to happen, it really should happen now. Uh, you know, we're next. You know, he's gone. You know, we're next on the list. So uh, as sad as that might be, uh, you know, that's the reality of life. So anyway, we started talking about doing it. Let's take the deep dive, you know, and uh, and and put the band back together. So we did, and we are. 
And here you are. Take me back to the early 80s, though, because it was such an interesting time. You know, I was looking back at the sort of the shift that happened. I don't always want to only attribute it to much music, but I think much music had a big role in it. To the fact that, you know, in 83, 84, you looked at the Canadian charts. There weren't that many Canadian bands, a few here and there. And then all of a sudden, 85... 86, 87, there was a big explosion of bands that hit hit the charts that people were listening to, watching the videos, buying the records. And you were part of that. You were part of that surge in appreciation and love of Canadian music. Um, what was it like to be there? Well, it was awesome. It was awesome. And and of course, you know, we sort of caught that uh that wave, uh, well, that new wave, uh, where, you know, in, in the past, you know, you had to be, you know, Canadian bands were, you know basically sort of blue collar rock and roll kind of uh straight ahead and the 80s brought technology sequencers synthesizers all that kind of stuff and and we just dove on top of that trend we had one of the first uh well i had the first mellotron in canada i think wow. and uh and that was pretty awesome as a matter of fact it's featured on dreamboat annie by heart really um, yeah and that was sort of my, the way my ticket into the studio world in vancouver I would rent my Mellotron out to all these people and uh, and meet all these great people and stuff. So, uh, you know, people ask about our influences and stuff. And, and we both loved Bowie, of course, uh, as I said, but also like bands like Kraftwerk. You know, we right. were just we were just uh, awestruck by these guys, by these, you know, people working these weird, you know, synthetic drums. And, and you know, it's like, how are they doing that? And how do how do we get on on board? And. But by the time the 80s, the mid-80s rolled around, yeah, loads of great uh, Canadian bands. As a matter of fact, uh, last year or the year before, yeah, I guess last year we we did a cover of uh, Nova Heart by The Spoons. Right. And I definitely think Canada punches above its weight. It, it did. I mean, for listeners, a Mellotron was, a, and you're, um, I don't, I've never owned one or used one, but it was a bit like the first sampler, right? I remember bands like OMD used it. And, you know, it was a pretty important, uh, important thing. And they were, they were very expensive, if I remember correctly, were they not? Oh, yeah. Well, I had to, they weren't available in North America. I had to fly to London, England to buy one. And I actually purchased a used one from the keyboard player for the animals. So that was pretty cool. I mean, I remember We Run vividly because it came out and there was a bunch of Canadian bands at the time. I'm thinking of like Chalk Circle came out a little bit later. The Spoons, you mentioned uh, Martha and the Muffins, who were predecessor, you know, sort of predated that. But there were a bunch of bands in this country that managed to sort of walk the line between sounding very British and still not sounding entirely British. There was something a little bit different about it. And um, that was one of those tracks. That track just jumped out of the radio. That, did you know right away that that was going to be that was going to be a hit? No idea. But I'll tell you, the the full credit has got to go to the person who mixed it, uh, who was Scott Litt. And he, uh, after that, went on, I, I like to think that we had something to do with the rest of his career, um, that he went on to become R.E.M.'s producer right? And, and sort of became famous for actually turning up Michael Stipe's vocals. Uh, Michael Stipe resisted. You know, I don't want to hear my vocals. Just, you know, have them just so that you can barely. It's like, no, no, we've got to. The world has to hear your voice, Michael. So anyway, uh, Scott Lid did a fantastic job on the mix of that track. It was it was great. You mentioned earlier when we first when we when we first started just about a bit of an identity issue. And, and I think a lot of Canadian bands of that era. Uh, ran into similar issues because there were a lot, there was a lot of talent out there in the eighties. A lot of bands you thought might stick around, and you mentioned, of course, that you know musical tastes change, and you know hip hop 
grew and grunge came um and a lot of bands didn't evolve into in in through that but you see you mentioned a bit of an identity problem i think and i don't think strange advance were alone i think there were a number of bands in the 80s who who were really good really good canadian bands who ran into similar issues and it was just uh, maybe there was a saturation of the market or who knows what what, what do you think happened well for us i think it it boiled down to we were just a little bit older than than other people uh, in, in bands that uh, of that era, and we were cantankerous old cranks, I guess. You know, we didn't want to do photo shoots, we didn't want to do videos, we didn't want to do interviews. We loved being in the studio, making our records and stuff, and that's just leave us alone. Let us do that. And we didn't want our faces on the album covers or anything like that. We weren't looking for sort of personal fame or anything. So I think all that hurt us. As a matter of fact, I can remember uh, uh, when we released Worlds Away, we were lucky enough to get uh, nominated for a a Juno for uh, Most Promising Act, which, of course, is the known as the kiss of death. You know, you never want to get that one. We put out uh, our, our second album. And and what do you know? We're nominated for best group of the year, and uh, and this time we're going to go to the ceremony. And and I was not concerned about winning best group of the year. You know, we're up against Rush and you know Parachute Club and whoever else was on the list. And it was like, yeah, what well, was a, a certainty we weren't going to win. And then when we're sitting there, because I'm I was naive, I didn't know the 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 routine or whatever. Uh, they're announcing best group of the year. And and now I've got a cameraman parked in my face. I'm going, oh, what's this about? What's going on? It's like, and I and in my mind, I'm going, somehow the vote has gotten split, and Strange Advance are going to shoot up the middle, and we're going to win. And I don't have a single thing to say. I'm like, my mind is blank. I'm going, oh, and I'm sitting there going, please don't let us win. Please don't let us win. Because <laughs> I knew if I was to get up on stage, I would just embarrass myself. So anyway, that that sort of epitomized our relationship with PR and stuff. Like, leave us alone. And, and now, but but you've come back, and and uh, it must be, it must be great to know that records you made thirty years ago, forty years ago, nearly at this point, still resonate. That you still have fans out there who want to hear these tracks again. Because uh, why else would you have made them in the first place if you didn't want people it, to listen to I, them forty years later and say, you know, I remember being in the car when Rerun came on, etc. Or Love Becomes Electric, and yeah, remember hearing yeah. it for the first time. Yeah, it's it's fantastic, and and I, you know, because of the internet, Facebook, and all that kind of stuff. I get to hear all these wonderful stories. You know, back in the day, we used to get fan mail. You know, and occasionally somebody would pick up a pen and write a little letter and, you know, whatever. And now, you know, people are, you know, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, uh, you know, you can find us and and you can reach out to us and we can respond wherever, you know, possible. And um, And so I get to hear all these stories and it's like, I made love to my wife to your song and you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, oh, how how lovely for you. Exactly. <laughs> 40th anniversary tour. I mean, I mentioned 40 years. It is 40 years, 40th anniversary yeah. tour. So you're you're gonna be out here uh, out west. I mean, you're from Vancouver originally, but you're doing yeah. uh doing out you're out here in Victoria and then you're doing some Ontario dates and Edmonton. Yeah. So yeah, where, where yeah. can people see you? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, this Saturday, as a matter of fact, the 13th, we're at the Capitol Ballroom in Victoria. And then we head uh, back east to uh, 
to do McBowl for Ed Souza in Mississauga, and, and then we go to Belleville, the Empire Theater, and then we're at Maxwell's in, in Waterloo. And then we come back here and we do some dates in Alberta. And um, yeah, it's, uh, and by the way, we've never played Victoria before. We've never played Belleville before. We've never played Edmonton, Calgary before. You know, we've missed out a lot of the country because we shied away from the the touring thing. You know, we weren't like road animals. We were just like, you know, studio. We just want to go to work on our next animal on our next record. Yeah, exactly. Studio animals. Yeah. And and what can, what can fans expect? Because you mentioned that you play some different stuff, and and you know obviously the hits people will hear the hits, but you 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 weave some sure. other tracks in there as well these days. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know we try to uh, mix it up a bit, and uh, and and we did a few dates last year, so we're trying to you know shake things up from from that set list. But uh, probably the the neatest thing that we've got going on now is we've partnered up with this awesome visual artist uh, Tim Hill. He used to work with Skinny Puppy, and oh, wow. uh, and he does like project projections and things. And uh, it's it's like an, we you know we got lasers, projectors. It's it's a pretty cool looking show, which is something we've never had before. You know, we 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 just used to be like you know a bunch of guys playing their guitars and keyboards on stage, and now it's like you know oh we we got the big show happening. You know, it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, 2023 uh, visual arts. It's obvious so much technology has, has done so much. Drew, thanks so much for your time and uh, and good luck on the tour. Thank you very much.